Hello, and welcome to Switchbacks, a travel podcast where we reflect on our year visiting all 59 U.S. national parks. Whether you're planning to visit your very first park or you bleed gray and green, we're here to share our insights on exploring, understanding, and loving America's best idea. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're back with an interview with Micah Meyer, who is on an epic quest to visit all 417 national parks on one continuous road trip. Good morning, everybody. I'm recording this today from the comfort of our almost put together new apartment. There are definitely still boxes everywhere. but I kind of resituated myself to face the window so as I'm recording this. So all I can see is trees. So that's all that matters, right? It's all good. Uh, today, we are bringing you an interview that we did last week with the awesome Micah Meyer. And he is a pretty well-known travel traveler in the NPS world right now. Um, you may have seen him on Instagram or you may have heard about him in another way. Um, But we first heard about Micah during our own trip when we were visiting all 59 national parks. And we were super impressed right away because he's taken on this this huge trip that has never before been done, um, which is his mission to visit all 417 NPS sites. So that includes national parks, monuments, historic sites, lake shores, battlefields, everything. And the, the, the never before uh, attempted part is that he's doing it all at once. So he's on this three-year continuous road trip covering the entirety of America um, from the mountains, the beautiful sweeping vistas, to the historic homes where some of America's great leaders grew up. This broad scope allows him not only to see the country for himself, but to share all he experiences with others on his social media and through his website. Um, But we will go ahead and let Micah speak for himself. So hopefully you guys enjoy our interview. All right. So Micah, are you there? I am here. So why don't you start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and about what you're doing right now? Yeah, so I am a uh, Nebraska native, which uh, after I moved to the coasts, I learned a lot of people don't know where that is. But uh, guessing that some of your listeners are probably from Missouri, they likely know. But if they don't, if they know where Missouri is, it's just northwest of Missouri. So I actually used to play a game with people at bars when, uh, when we would meet and they would find out I was from Nebraska and I'd find out where they were from. They would kind of give me this odd nod and I'd say, you don't know where that is, do you? (laughs) And they would always say, oh, yes, I do. (laughs) And I'd say, "Okay, well, then name me a border state. And Missouri, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of them. (laughs) Nobody ever thought of that one. But it was so hilarious because they'd always start out and they would guess Oklahoma, which I guess because of the football rivalry, maybe. Right. And then I'd tell them no, and they would either guess uh, Wisconsin or Idaho. (laughs) I think maybe they just thought, we'll pick one of those that we don't know that sound funny because it's probably by it. Well, all Um, the states that aren't on the coast, they all just kind of touch each other, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. And so then usually on the third guess, they would get one right or 
the most common answer, and I guess they just figure because it's so big, it must touch a lot of stuff, but they would guess Texas. Nice. And if they couldn't, if they couldn't get it by the third try, I'd just say, "Okay, you you have a good day. I'm gonna go away now." <laughs> so from Nebraska, born and raised. Yes. <laughs> and so, what what after Nebraska? What, what happened? Yeah, sorry. So um, originally from Nebraska, but kind of as soon as I had a chance to uh, escape, I did, and I wanted to get out and see the world, and so. Um, whether that was for a university in Memphis or Montreal, um, or after grad school, I, I lived in my car for nine months and kind of drove all around North America to decide where I wanted to move. And I landed in Washington, DC. Um, so, so prairie roots, but you know, that, that kind of good, wholesome education taught me that there was a lot more out in the world than Nebraska could offer. So I really wanted to go see it. Nice. So you're no stranger to travel, it sounds like. And no, I mean, yeah. Growing up, our family was poor, so we didn't fly. So we would just drive everywhere, even if it was like Nebraska to Florida, which for those people who don't know where Nebraska is, that's about a 28-hour drive. <laughs> but that is a good thing about being in the Midwest or the middle of the country. You can drive so many different places, at least. Right. I mean, I joke, you know, the College World Series are in Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm like, it's such a perfect location because nobody feels slighted like they have to go all the way across the country. And then they come to Omaha and they're like, oh, my God, it's so cheap and there's no traffic and everyone's nice. This place is great. (laughs) Is that where the town you grew up in or the city? Uh, I was in Lincoln. So it's the capital city about an hour away from Omaha. Right. Um, Yeah, I've been to both those. We really like Omaha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We lived in Kansas City for three years, so we uh, would we took a weekend trip to Omaha, and it's great. It's a nice place. Yeah. yeah. So you're used to traveling everywhere, on the road, no less. So I'm guessing yeah. that kind of gave you some experience to draw from for what you're doing now. Yeah, so all, all that background is to say that I am currently living uh, in a van down by the river, and... Uh, driving around not just to rivers but to grasslands and seashores and parks and trying to visit all 417 sites that the National Park Service manages and doing it in one continuous three-year nonstop trip. That is massive. Yeah, we've been it's, following it's so we've been following along like you know for since the beginning. Um, but walk us through a little bit, walk our readers, our listeners through how you got the idea for this trip and um, kind of the inspiration for doing something this massive. Because not many people do something quite this massive. <laughs> or even know that, you know, there's 417 National Park units. So Yeah. Um, well... Yeah, it's, um, I'll give you kind of the insider scoop. Most interviews, you know, you got to put it into a soundbite or keep it under like two minutes. And so I kind of give the condensed version. But since this is a podcast, your listeners are getting an exclusive, real Ooh. story. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, um, so I was a pastor's kid. Um, my dad at, at one time was, uh, the pastor at America's largest Lutheran campus ministry at the University of Nebraska. And um, and so that was kind of, that's my background. That's the, the life I grew up in, almost literally in a church. And um, 
And when I was 19, my dad passed away from esophageal cancer. And it was really my first experience with death uh, in my life and losing someone close. And so, uh, you know, we had this history of road trips. My dad always said if he hadn't been a pastor, he would have likely been a trucker because he loved driving so much. And so I think that was something I inherited from him. And um, so 10 days after his funeral, as a way to grieve, I got in his car that still smelled like his pipe and had his sunflower seeds on the floor and his tattered atlas next to the front seat. And I took a road trip. And it was totally not glamorous at all. It was seven days to magical locations like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Brookings, South Dakota, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Northfield, Minnesota. The heartland. Nice. Right. All of those amazing places that nobody knows about. Um, but for me, it was just such, it was such a magical experience, both in, in the grieving process, in that it showed me that physically escaping this town that had been nothing but cancer and death for so many years was physically separating myself from that and putting myself in a new space really helped me clear my mind and process things. And at the same time, you know, that whole trip, it was like, did it for like 80 bucks because I split the gas with my friend. I stayed with friends and family and it just really hooked me on this whole like road trip and traveling cheap and and so basically every year since age 19, I've done one road trip to honor that experience and, you know, honor this lesson I learned through my dad's death that life is short, time is not guaranteed, we should appreciate time and people and experiences while we have the chance to do them. And so that's kind of how I came to what I'm doing today It was this history of doing this since 19. And when I reached 28, I had... I had decided I wanted to do something epic when I turned 30, something big, something to really extend this road trip, partly as a way to share this lesson that I learned and share it with other people in a way that they wouldn't have to learn this lesson as hard as I had to. And so when I turned 28, I figured it was time to buck up or shut up. And if I was going to do something at 30, I needed to start to plan. And I'd thought about all the road trips I'd done from 18 to 28 and the places I'd been, the things I'd seen. And what I realized that every road trip I'd ever done was based around where I could stay with friends and family for free to keep costs cheap. And so that meant that a lot of the country I had not experienced. And I thought about the few national parks I'd been to and how incredible they were, but how they were nowhere near anyone that I knew, most of them. And I thought, well, man, it'd be really cool if I could go to all those and if I could figure out a way to, you know, live near them. And then that was basically the genesis. You know, I started looking into where are the parks and, oh, wait, what are these? What are these things? The seashores. And that's really pretty. And, oh, look at that lakeshore photo. And and then I realized that it's not just these 59 really popular national parks, but the, the park system has a a whole cadre of units that often for political reasons have different names, but are many times just as stunning, if not more, than the 59 national parks. Right. Yeah, definitely. So that, that actually leads perfectly into our next question was, was why specifically all doing all the parks, what's important about seeing the whole spectrum versus similar to what we did, which is just, you know, we had to cut it off somewhere. So we just visited the 59 parks. 
But what what do you think is important about seeing the the array of designations that you are going to get to see? Well, it's really changed for me. Uh, you know, ahead of time, I'll admit I was quite naive, and I thought that everything was like the Grand Canyon, not to the magnitude, but, you know, I thought the National Park Service only managed beautiful natural sites. And so my goal was to visit the most beautiful places in America. And very quickly into my journey, I learned that a lot of them are historic sites and it's like a house or a room. (laughs) A lot. Yeah. And so, you know, initially it was, it was looking at the map of the 59 parks and noticing how many of them were on the West coast and or on the Western half of the U S and most of my travel had been on the Eastern half. And I, f- I felt like there were a lot of places I wanted to go. A lot of things I wanted to see, um, like the great lakes region. I know you guys just did a trip to sleeping bear dunes. And so there were places like that that I thought these are really interesting, but why aren't they getting the attention that the Western half of the country is getting? So, it initially started as a way to kind of be more inclusive of the whole country and go to some places I had heard about and thought about going and use this as a way to include them. And then after I started, you know, it's it's been really fascinating to see all these places you hear about in school and they're just amorphous places that don't mean anything to you. And now to go to them and, you know, to walk where Martin Luther King Jr., um, had the Selma, the Selma March and to stand in these places of historical significance or natural beauty of, of different degrees, like the seashores. Um, it is just giving me such a complete idea of how America came to be what it is today. And so, uh, while it started out as kind of just this goal to see other places that hadn't been included, it's really changed to this really awesome understanding of what makes us all Americans, which is a pretty fitting thing to say today on July 4th. Yeah, we forgot to mention, happy happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I love that, you know, your mission really brings out, to me, uh, I mean, what is the true National Park Service mission, not just protecting natural landscapes and beauty, but the cultural heritage, because that Mm -hmm. is a whole half, at least, of what the National Park Service is meant to do. And, you know, they have a lot of other other goals as well. But to me, that's uh, overlooked sometimes. So, yeah, we just love that. And why don't you tell us right now, first of all, where are you? Second of all, where are you in your trip? How long have you been going? And what number park are you on? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm i on the Kitsap Peninsula right now, which is basically smack dab in between Olympic National Park and Seattle. And uh, I'm up in this area because there's eight National Park Service sites, kind of all within an hour or two radius. Um, so taking a few weeks up here. I just finished Olympic National Park as site number 188, so I've got, uh, I guess, 229 to go. Uh, I've been on the road for 14 months, and I think it'll be about a little under two years more until I'm done. All right, so it sounds like you're pretty on track for three years. 
Yeah, I think so. I'm actually, you know, if you just kind of divide up the days and the parts I've done, I'm actually ahead of schedule. But as I'm sure you and your listeners know, um, there will be a large portion of parks that take way more days than the others. And those are the ones in Alaska, American Samoa, Guam and Hawaii. Those were fun times. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're going to be wishing you best of luck with Alaska specifically. Yeah. <laughs> what, that's a beast. Yeah, um, I was actually just listening to your podcast with Our V Adventures and talking about Alaska, and I was like, oh, God, I got to start planning. <laughs> love it. Yeah, we, so we planned 59 back, essentially 59 back-to-back trips to the national parks, but you are planning 417 back-to-back. So what, what are some of the challenges that, that um, come with that, just, the, just logistically? Um, I know a lot of listeners have visited national parks and kind of know what those challenges can entail. But with you specifically, what are some of the big challenges that are in your future of planning this trip? Well, yeah, and I'm sure this is something you you can relate to, but you know, I often get people who say to me, oh gosh, well, I wish I could just take a vacation for three years. <laughs> right. And it's I love like, that word, vacation. <laughs> right. I'm like, can you describe to me what a vacation is like? And they're like, well, you know, it's relaxing and we, and we treat ourselves and we go somewhere where we can, you know, just do the things we want to do all the time. And I'm like, my trip is none of those. I'm like, it's, <laughs> it's nonstop work. It's nonstop planning. You know, most people plan their vacation months in advance. They book their stuff. They look at websites to decide what they want to do. Then they come home and they take a week or so. They put their stuff on Facebook, their pictures. And I basically take all of that and I do it in a day. So, you know, on any given day, I'm sharing yesterday's park, experiencing today's park, and planning tomorrow's park. So there really is no downtime because if I'm not doing something – I look at my to-do list and it's 20 things long. It's like, I need to be doing something. So, you know, I think that I use the word project because it's definitely not a vacation. Yes, I'm seeing places that are amazing that were on my bucket list that are vacation spots, but it's the logistics of it are so on steroids that it doesn't leave you any, any real downtime. And so, yeah, it's basically just this sort of nonstop logistics. I uh, I was just joking with my boyfriend recently. We were doing this cheesy Facebook questionnaire, and it said if you could go anywhere, or your your partner is supposed to answer about you, and the question was if I could go anywhere, where would I go? And he said you would take a week off and just watch Netflix and have no plans. Right. That is me. <laughs> We, we would be well, I would be we would just be holed up in a Starbucks or something with good internet yeah. on our trip and just like watching TV. Well, <laughs> not you, even you say that, but I, I what I remember is being exactly like Micah, where I we had know. to load everything, we had to plan, reserve everything. That one day we had service, and then if we were lucky, we would get like an hour before bed where we could. Rent a red box or right. I guess, oh, yeah. red box. I guess hey. I meant I dreamed about it. Yeah. <laughs> I dreamed of just like laying on a couch. Like that was the the my biggest fantasy because we didn't have like a great yeah. place to just like sprawl out and relax. <laughs> I dreamed of just sitting down with a beer and watching a Cardinals game, baseball, because I'm a huge yeah. baseball fan. So 
it's it's weird how you know <laughs> when you are having the adventure of a lifetime and seeing you know the best views the best places of your life back to back you know if you you just kind of change your it's not like you don't appreciate them or don't love them or aren't living yeah. up at the time but you yearn for different things <laughs> well it's it's so funny cuz uh, I said back to him, I was like, I thought you'd say Australia, but you know, it's like this because kind of sitting on the couch and doing nothing is like the an antithesis of who I am. But it's like when you're so deep in this world of adventure, adventure, go, 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 you're right. Like you do just want to sit down and watch your favorite sports team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So it, that sounds, that definitely sounds like the biggest challenge. Um, what about what you do then? To experience the parks because that is you know the biggest because we always had a balance you know we had to balance okay do we want how much do we want to work on the promotion and mm -hmm. getting our message out there because that work can be endless oh um, god you're right at, but or how much do we want to actually be in the parks be present and experience you know the the places we're coming for and we always if there was ever a conflict, we, we tended towards the latter. You know, we were about four days in a park and one, one of work. So, um, but, but tell us about, like, how long you try to spend in each park and maybe what you do typically in those parks. Yeah, well, to kind of bounce off your last, your last remark, I, I might be the opposite. You know, I, because this is a three-year project, I am I'm very actively fundraising as I go along. Um, I talked to some national park experts before I started and they basically said, you're nowhere close to the amount of money you need to do this. And so my kind of in the back of my head always is I need to be putting out content. I need to be giving, giving people a service that might make them want to donate, um, essentially to keep me on the road and keep me getting to the next park. So unfortunately I think I default to the, um, share it, um, place sooner. Sure. But, um, yeah, you ha I mean, you, there's no way we could have kept up our pace for three years. You, you gotta pace yourself with like the, the, even just the hiking and the active part and the, yeah. So anyway, keep going. Yeah. Well, and, and that's actually kind of the nice thing about the historic sites as, is as I've been planning my trip, uh, I can kind of count on like, well, if, if, today is a historic site, it'll probably only take two to three hours, and then I can go to a library the rest of the day and get some work done. Um, versus some parks where it's like, okay, this is going to be three or four days of like nonstop out in the woods, um, no internet connection. And so it's a balance. Um, I was really lucky in that before I started this journey, uh, coincidentally, there was a gentleman who lived five miles east of me who had been to all 401 sites when that was the total number just a few years ago. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And so he came over one night and over dinner, we pulled out my spreadsheet and from memory, he and I went through, well, he went through every park and he told me what he thought would be the ideal amount of time to spend at each site. And so I basically put all those hours and days into a spreadsheet and then added them all up and then added in driving time and added in work time and blah, 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 and came up with this three years. And so when I get to the parks and I'm there, I really do try to experience them as fully as possible, both for the followers and the people who 
are seeing these places through my journey, but also for me personally, so that I can feel like check mark, I did that personal goal accomplished. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you you were, you're talking about um, some of the promotion and and the sharing and the social media that you are working on, um, and we know just because we follow you that you have a a, a deeper meaning for doing this trip and a deeper yeah. message you want to share. So I, yeah. I we've seen that you've talked about um, reaching a younger community and LGBTQ community. So can you talk a little bit about how what you're doing with that? Yeah, so uh, when I started this journey, I I spent about two years actually contacting any company that I could imagine had any tie to road trips or traveling or national parks, um, about 800 companies in all. And as I was doing that, I was absolutely terrified that they would find out I was gay. And it's not that I have a problem with being gay. You know, I'm very out of my personal life. I'm, quote, gay on the Internet, as I call it. If you Googled me before this journey, you would know. Um, but, you know, I looked at the outdoors industry and I looked at the travel industry, and it is so heteronormative and white. No offense to any heteronormative white people. <laughs> um, but I basically, I very quickly realized, obviously, they don't think that there's a market for LGBT people, so if they know I'm gay, there's no way they're going to be interested. And at the same time, I was afraid of, you know, coming from Nebraska, I realized that there are very diverse opinions on what it means to be LGBT, and I was really terrified that lots of people would lose the forest for the trees, literally, and they would find out I was gay, and they would stop following, they would turn off, and lose the national park aspect just because of that small, 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 small portion of it. So I was super just careful about who I told what, what my inflections were on the phone and during interviews. And, and then ultimately the companies all kind of said, you know, it's a great project, great story, but you're not famous, so we don't care. And then I started the thing, and one of the first interviews I did mentioned not only that I was gay, but that I was a gay Christian. And uh, it was in the Washington Post, and so actually the National Park Service director saw it, Jonathan Jarvis. Wow. And called, yeah, called me in to meet him just days after I started. Um, and one of the things he had told me, and that I was learning from the National Parks Conservation Association and the National Park Foundation, is that they, you know, through their centennial in 2016 and just ongoing projects, have, have really made an effort to be inclusive of people who are in the parks often, of demographics that don't make it into the, to the parks. And so they said, you know, we actually struggle with millennials. The average age of our visitor is close to 60. And so as a 30-year-old, you're kind of helping us reach out to a younger generation that we would want to experience these places. And then the big kicker was the gay thing because especially in, a, in an outdoors industry, it is just so, you know, I hate to call anyone out, but I just was reading some outdoors magazines and they had all these articles about dating in the outdoors and every single picture is a straight white couple. And people say, well, why aren't racial minorities interested in the parks and why, why don't the LGBT 
community? Why don't they feel safe in the parks? And I just say, would you look at the advertising? Would you look at the editorials? Everything, nothing is in there telling us <clears throat> that we are already part of this community or that we're wanted. And so, um, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. Long story short, basically, there's no, this huge, there's a huge vo- void of the LGBT um, representation in the outdoors in the parks. So, I kind of kicked that fear at the beginning to the side um, once I started hearing from the Park Service and from LGBT rangers who said, thanks for telling our story, you know, people don't think we exist. And then getting messages from like 15-year-olds in Texas at private schools who said, you know, I'm not out of the closet and I go to a religious school, but seeing you doing this shows me that not only I can be Christian and gay, but I can be ordinary and I can be extraordinary. And it's like, once you get a message like that, you realize it's not about you at all. And so I, I said, I don't care if everybody knows I'm gay and if it scares away potential sponsors, uh, it's more important for me to make people feel welcome and safe and comfortable in their own skin than any of my own benefit. Yeah, that's, that's so great. And, one of the things we know from, you know, li- listening and following to you is that you have always been true to yourself, and I think that's so important for people to see, you know, people like them loving the parks, so they know, like you said, that, you know, it's something that they can do and they would love, and uh, I just think it's a great example for everybody. So, I mean, thanks for doing what you're doing, because I, I think the you know, the younger generations, the LGBTQ community, minorities, they, we all need, uh, and they all need, examples to look up to, especially now. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a tough balance. I often feel bad for my Facebook followers because I feel like every other thing I post is like gay something. And, and, and I try really hard, you know, this is not a gay trip. This is a, a national park strip that is being taken by someone who just happens to be gay. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a balance of trying to honor those things and at the same time keep the core of, of what the journey is. Definitely. So why don't, uh, looking a little bit more at the kind of specifics of the trip so far, you've been mm-hmm. all over the map already um, of the U.S., have there been any, first of all, why don't you just say like maybe how you devised your route, just a quick peek into that because that, I find that super interesting. And then along your route so far, have you found any unexpected gems that just floored you? Yeah, so um, I'll kind of relate this to what I think you guys did. Um, so I'm living in a van. Uh, Similar to you, except mine uh, is a cargo van. It's I think you guys were in a minivan, right? We were like in a crossover, so we didn't sleep in it. We um, just had all our stuff there, <laughs> but mostly we were just living in our tent. Wait, what about, I thought you did Walmart parking lots. That was <laughs> mostly on the way to Alaska, and then uh, a because few... Because we, we dumped a lot of our stuff off at home before taking off to Alaska, so we were able to actually shift some of the stuff from the back seat to the front seats and then crawl in 
And but nice. we had like no room. It was really tight and it was not comfortable and we do not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but we are a proponent of Walmart parking lots. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, love the Walmarts. Although it's funny, I've moved on from Walmarts to something more secret, which maybe I'll tell you at the end. Um, because Walmarts were so noisy, I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, yeah. Can't, can't do it too much, but. Um, but yeah, so long and short of it is I'm in a van. It's a cargo van. It's a white windowless cargo van. Insert stereotype here. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's it's great because it's uh, tall enough that I'm six one and I can stand up in the back. It's got about six foot two inches of space, um, and then it's long enough. It's twelve feet of cargo space that I have actually my queen size mattress, the same one that I slept on for the past four years, in the van. So, you know, I spent a long time looking at options, everything from a sedan and a tent to a massive RV to an SUV towing a Airstream, and ultimately I ended up on the van because A, all the companies I contacted said no, and B, uh, anything else was too expensive. And so I initially was looking at like 15 passenger cargo vans, and then somebody just said, dude, you need to get a Sprinter van. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I found out that there's Sprinter vans made by Mercedes, there's the Ford Transit, and there's the Ram Promaster. And they're basically just high-roof cargo vans that people have been converting into little mobile homes. Um, And because of what was available to me on Craigslist in like the one-week period that I realized I wasn't going to get sponsored and needed to find a van and build it into a home in a month, um, I ended up with a Ram Promaster van and it's basically got this mattress in the back, um, some chambers for storage, um, a high efficiency fridge, which runs off solar panels on the roof. And, uh, I was able to do all that for about a third of what Winnebago would charge you for putting a custom home into the same shell, the same ProMaster shell. The only downside is, uh, there is no heating or air conditioning when the van's not running. There's no running water. Um, and so that's what really informed my route planning is I realized much I think like I think you guys did is that to not freeze to death or overheat, I would need to spend the summers up north and the winters down south. And so, Basically, as I kind of looked at the map and where all the parks were and where I wanted to go, um, I came up with this loose idea that I would spend my first summer in the upper Midwest uh, because it was temperate. I had been there before working at summer camps and knew the weather was nice. Uh, It was probably the cheapest place I'd go on this whole journey. So if I ended up failing, at least I wouldn't have blown all my money right away. Um but then take that over to New England for the fall. I did Florida for my first winter, spent the early spring in South Texas, and then kind of tried to ride the wave of temperate weather from Texas up through New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, to Washington State, where I am now. And so I'll spend this summer in the Pacific Northwest, next winter in Southern California, Arizona, and the, excuse me, the island parks. And then my final summer in Alaska, um, basically because after a few really cold nights and a few really hot nights, I've learned that if the low is below 30, 
or the nighttime temperature is above 68, it's basically impossible to sleep in the van. So the goal is to always be somewhere where the nighttime lows are in that range. That's a good window. Yeah, it's amazing. It totally, uh, I never thought that I would determine where I would sleep based on like the temperature. Uh, it, it just makes you look at things, you know, it's like when you travel and you stay in a hotel, you don't think of these things. It's like, well, I'll just get up and take a shower and dress for the weather and be fine. Right. Um, you're so, yeah. you're just so much more in tune. We found that we were so much more in tune with everything around us. Like, yeah. We got back into St. Louis in about, we were about two months um, back here at home, and I realized I have no idea what time the sun sets. Like, where, <laughs> whereas when we were traveling, we always knew, like, by the minute what time the yeah. sun was going to rise and set because we were outside. We were living outside. And so we, we just had, we just knew these things, and we always knew what the temperature was going to be that day, and we always knew what what the low and the high and the, the weather, if it was going to rain. Sometimes it rains here. I'm like, I had no idea it was going to rain today. Whereas right. when we were traveling, we always, we were just in tune. We just knew because we had to. You're just exposed to all of these new elements. Did you ever have to outrun a storm? Like you saw a storm was coming and you're like, we got to go. <laughs> there was one time when we were in Great Basin National Park. Mm -hmm. And we were climbing up to Wheeler, Wheeler Peak, yeah. yeah, the second tallest uh, point in Nevada. So mm -hmm. it was like 13,000 feet up. And we saw these storm clouds coming in and getting closer and closer. And like pretty far off in the distance was, was some lightning and there started some and rumblings. We were very exposed. So we yeah. definitely had to get down to tree line. But, and we hustled. It and was it, fine. But other than that, I can't remember too many times of really outrunning storms like we definitely uh -huh. rained on plenty of times but <laughs> sometimes there was no outrunning right. to be done sometimes we just had to deal with it <laughs> so it, you mentioned you know the national parks are relatively well known maybe some people don't know places like great basin but mm -hmm. a lot of the national parks get a lot of hype you've been to now 188 of all these different national park sites. So ha are there any unexpected gems that, you know, aren't national parks, but are places that just blew you away? Yeah, so I'm sorry, I forgot to get to that part of your last question. No um, there, yeah, there have been, and this is, um, you know, no offense against the 59 national parks, no offense against anyone who did those, but it's, for me, I don't know who that could fun. be. <laughs> what? I don't know who that could be. <laughs> no. no one, never. Who would do that? <laughs> um, but it's been cool for me to to experience these places and find places that, um, you know, I'm like, I, I had a joke for a while. I can't remember what national park it was. But every time I'd go to a monument or anything that I liked more than that, I'd be like, well, that was better than Black Canyon or the Gunnison National Park. Um <laughs> I don't think it was that one. It was a different one. But, it, you know, it's like it's this idea that the 59 national parks must be the most amazing, awesome things the Park Service runs, when in reality, it might be those were the 59 that are awesome. Most of them have been amazing. But a lot of times it's politics. You know, it's some senator was owed a favor and they wanted a bill pushed through. So they made Hot Springs National Park a national park. Um 
or some, you know, Congress just did not want to designate public lands. So rather than be a national park, which Congress has to designate, it was a national monument, which the president could do through the Antiquities Act. And so um, kind of my rule of thumb is that any national lakeshore or national seashore is going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you you just experienced that in the Great Lakes National Lakeshores. Totally. Um, I, I haven't been to a single national lakeshore or national seashore that wasn't either just really cool because of the fact that it's not developed. You know, like um, Gulf Islands National Seashore, you, you're near Pensacola, Pensacola Beach, and there's all these hotels and pizza huts and souvenir stands. And then, like, you see the sign that says Gulf Islands National Seashore, and you cross over the line, and it just instantly switches to pure sand dunes. And both my boyfriend and I audibly gasped out loud because it was just such a beautiful transition. And so I found that these are really unique places that preserve America as it looked like before we showed up and put our McDonald's in. Mm -hmm. Um, Aside from that, a lot of national monuments have been really cool. Um, I do this thing where I'm rating every park service site on a scale of one to 10. Um, not because some of them aren't worthy. Um, you know, every site, whether it's national park or national historic site I've learned has taken a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of passion to get turned into a designation. So I'll never speak badly about a place, but I've been ranking them one to 10 so that essentially when I'm done with this trip, uh, anybody could look at my list and see where I had the best visitors experiences to plan their next vacation, uh, regardless of designations. And so some of my 10 rated parks so far, um, have been Buck Island Reef National Monument, which is an Island off of St. Croix in the U S Virgin Islands, Mm -hmm. white sands national monument in Southern New Mexico, uh, hundreds and hundreds of yards of pure gypsum sand, uh, dinosaur national monument on the border of Utah and Colorado. Uh, that's one that I often joked about was way better than black Canyon of the Gunnison. Um, it's one of my favorite sites overall. And, uh, wolf trap national park for the performing arts, uh, is, near Washington, D.C., and it's basically this amazing outdoor concert venue, and maybe I'm biased, but I got to see Dolly Parton perform there, and so that was a 10, like, hands down, no oh, question. Oh, that's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a handful of those that have been 10s. There's also a handful of Na- Capital and Capital P National Parks that have been 10s, um, but those are some of the hidden gems so far. That's awesome. We always love getting new ideas. We've been to, uh, we actually. Of those, we've been to White Sands. Yeah, that's the only one. So we, we have a lot on our list. <laughs> always adding to our list. Good. Keeping the podcast going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we've got to have some content. So I had a curious question for you. You know, the, the parks have been in the news a lot, especially uh-huh. in the political news a lot. Um, and you now are immersed in the parks you know we're not Mm -hmm. in the parks day to day anymore um so i was just wondering if you can feel that and if you you know how is the the climate of the parks um these days well it's funny i was in utah um basically the whole month of may and 
people are probably in tune to the Bears Ears National Monument, which is BLM land, not NPS managed, uh, but is very in the news because it was one of Obama's last protected areas uh, in a state that is perhaps frustrated with having more of their lands taken. Um, and so I get, I get asked about Bears Ears a lot. Um, Utah was actually a great kind of microcosm of the National Park Service because they have so many federally protected lands that it's just people are aware of it. And so the NPR stations around there had a bunch of stories about how, you know, Arches National Park had 1.6 million visitors last year and it's not built for that many. And so their roads are falling apart. Um, Zion National Park has had over 4 million visitors and it's not equipped for that. And yet their funding is going down even as they have more visitors every year. So it's fascinating to see the way that our national treasures, uh, America's best idea, are maybe being overloved or hugged too tightly without putting money in the back pocket at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's been fascinating just to see, to see that, to see the way that our country views public lands specifically with bears ears. Uh, I noticed there were a lot of misconceptions about what federal designation means. There were a lot of people in Southeast Utah who said, you know, we, we have been we've been taking our families on these lands uh, for generations, and we we want to still be able to do that. And it's like you will still be able to do that. You just can't collect the native artifacts that you've been taking and selling on eBay. You know, like right. right. It it's like people are like we want freedom, but only when it doesn't disadvantage us. Yep. <laughs> And so just a lot of myths about what federal protection does. You know, I'm like, you can still enjoy these lands. They're just going to be protected and taken care of so that your great, great grandchildren can also enjoy them. Yeah, it's such a it can get so complicated, you know, with the the designations, the uses that you can have with different areas of land, you know, who actually manages it. Um, and I can understand, you know, why people are confused sometimes but um yeah I, that's why we just need more people like you talking talking about them and and really helping people understand why these places are special and clarifying that message of the parks well it's like all things you know if you just read the headline you're not gonna get the whole story so it yeah it's about hopefully you know, telling people what it means when when the NPS gets a chunk of land and uh, getting them out into the parks to experience it. You know, people say, if you could tell one thing to anyone hearing this story, what would it be? And I usually say, you know, just go, just pick pick a park. Um, I realize there are accessibility issues and that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> but right. just find a park to steal the phrase of their uh, park service campaign Find your park, go somewhere, experience it, and then make your judgments afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. We just appreciate you so much sharing this message. And we've had so much, such a great time talking to you, too. We want to end on a positive note for sure. Um, so we always, you know, during our trip, we have these few memorable moments that we always kind of go back to whether it be like watching the sunrise from Cadillac Mountain or um, 
I don't know, all sorts of different things. But seeing we, Denali for the first seeing, time. Yeah, yeah they're just... Um, do you have... Just kind of walk us through one... It doesn't have to be your, your favorite, most spectacular moment, but walk, walk us through one memorable moment that you've had in the parks and why you may not ever forget it. Well, it's funny because I talk a lot about um, how the national park system is not just the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, go figure, basically, the first my first experience with the national park was at the Grand Canyon five years ago, was hiking with my childhood best friend into Havasu Falls for a few nights. And that's what really hooked me on the national park service. And so looking back on that, I think what made it so special was that this was a friend that I don't get to see that often. And here we got to go into this secluded nature and, you know, everything was about us hanging out and the nature around us and the experience. And it was so unique. And that, that point, what made it unique was driven home to me last month when I got to do an eight day rafting trip through the Colorado river, um, through the grand Canyon. And, it was the exact same experience. You know, I am constantly on the internet now. I'm constantly on my cell phone doing work, but I think the general American is also constantly connected. And for eight days, I had no cell phone, no internet, no TV. There was no, there was no way of being inundated by even the smallest amount of noise in our current culture, which is nonstop surrounded by noise and advertising and entertainment. And it reminded me of that first trip to the the Grand Canyon and why and how our national parks can be so special because in a world full of noise, they can force us to slow down and remember the things that are important. And that's our family and our friends and spending time enjoying this earth that we don't know how many years we're going to get to have to experience it. So whether it was the Grand Canyon five years ago or just a month ago, it's always been a special place to me because of its sheer secludedness and remoteness. It forces you to experience that magic in a world that is increasingly becoming difficult to experience it. Right. And, and one of the most amazing things about the parks and why we love them so much is that the Grand Canyon has been the same for thousands and thousands of years. So you have been able to have that same experience or a completely different experience whenever you go. Um, and that's you know what I know we all hope to preserve for our you know future generations. So I, we could probably talk forever on, on that <laughs> right. and, we, and forever on all of them swapping our park stories. But um, why don't you just end up by telling people uh, where they can find you and follow along with your journey? Well, for your local listeners, um, I'll actually be coming through St. Louis uh, October 13th through 15th, and I'm currently um, reaching out to churches every Sunday. I'm at a different church uh, singing and speaking, so I'll, I'll be somewhere in the St. Louis area and be doing a, a public meeting, um, and hopefully we can get together. Uh, maybe we can go, what is it? It's Budweiser is the factory there, right? We yep. can go get free beers or something. Oh, yeah. You can even take a shower at our apartment if you want. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, sounds perfect. All right. Well, hopefully I'll see you all again and we can keep chatting. Um, 
but yeah, if people want to follow along with this journey and see the entirety of America, every state and territory from the smartphone in their palm, they can go to my website, which is micahmeyer.com. That's M-I-K-A-H-M-E-Y-E-R. But if you misspell it in Google, um, fortunately, there aren't a lot of Micah Meyers, so it'll probably take you to my website. Uh, they can also type in Micah Meyer into Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube and follow along on their favorite social media platform. All right. Well, thank you, Micah, so much. We appreciate you taking the time out of your holiday to talk to us. Um, and we hope I you hope you can go find some hot dogs and beer or, yeah. or fireworks, whatever <laughs> your, your celebration of choice is. Right. Happy birthday, America. Happy birthday, America. Thanks, Micah. And there you have it. We hope you enjoyed the interview and you find a little inspiration for visiting a national park near you. Quickly, we wanted to mention a page on our website that we recently updated. We spent an entire year sleeping, cooking, and playing outside, and so we think it's time to share about some of our favorite and least favorite gear. If you're interested in which tent held up after using it every night for eight months, and it's extremely affordable, go check out our gear page at switchbackkids.com gear. You can also simply search gear on our homepage at switchbackkids.com. So thanks for checking us out today. We'll be back next week with a super fun top 10 list. The topic? In true Micah Meyer fashion, we're talking about our favorite NPS parks that weren't the 59 parks. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love for you to share us with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud, or find us on social media. And you can always get additional National Parks videos, posts, guides, and more on our blog at switchbackkids.com. Switchbacks out.